Hello everybody, I'm Dan Merle and I'm super excited to be bringing you coverage for the first time of a film festival. And covering a film festival is something that I've wanted to do forever. It was high up on my priority list of things to do when I launched this channel. Now I'm covering it a little bit differently than I thought that I would be because the Sundance Film Festival usually takes place in Utah. It was planned to be a big in-person event this year. That was called off at the last minute. So everything was done for the second year in a row virtually, meaning you could go online, you could buy tickets for screenings, they had an app that you could watch movies at at home, and the selections were really endless. You were really only constrained by the scheduling of the movies themselves and your own time. So I went a little overboard. I had planned to watch about 20 movies. I ended up watching about 28 movies over the past six or seven days. It's really all kind of a blur. I, I started doing this thing that I called strategic napping, where I would just catch a few hours sleep wherever I could. But it it was so much fun to throw myself into this world, to watch all these different movies. Uh, some of them I liked more than others. We're going to go through pretty much everything that I watched. I'll go into a little more detail on the ones that I really loved because I don't want this to be like a three hour long video, but it was so great to go into these movies also just completely blind on a lot of them. I had a description uh, for some of them uh, and that's about it. And it was really tough to decide where to start. So I basically categorized everything into little clusters, movies that I thought were great movies that I thought were really good, movies that I thought were pretty good, and then going on down the list. Now, there were so many different movies at Sundance this year, I don't think anybody, no matter how much time or money or what their internet speed was, could have seen all of them. And Sundance is, first and foremost, for a lot of folks, a marketplace, meaning there's a lot of movies that don't yet have distribution that go to Sundance in order to be purchased. And two of the movies that were purchased at Sundance were two that I did not get a chance to see. One of them is a movie called Living, starring Bill Nye. The other one is a movie called Good Luck to You, Leo Grand, which stars Emma Thompson. But the good news is that because both of those films were purchased, myself and everyone else will get a chance to see them at some point later this year. But as we go through this list, I'll try to mention the ones that have distribution, the ones that don't have distribution, so you'll know where to pick up and watch some of these films throughout the rest of this year. And we'll begin with what I think was my favorite. It was a little movie. As a matter of fact, I almost didn't watch this film. I was going through, I had a packed day. I think I had already four movies that I'd bought tickets for. I'd had a big day the day before, but I saw the description and the picture of this movie and something just said, hey, let's give this one a shot. It's a movie called Brian and Charles. It's directed by Jim Archer in his feature debut. It's written by and starring David Earl and Chris Hayward. And it's about, uh, a home inventor who lives in Wales who decides to build his own robot out of scraps that he finds uh, around the town. I will sit in the front, Bran. You will not sit in the front, you'll sit in the back. Maybe I could drive and you could walk, Bran. You have got a very, very cheeky brain, and I don't like it. This was not only the funniest film of the festival for me, this was the funniest film that I've seen in a really long time. And it really kind of encapsulated the film festival experience for me and why I wanted to watch so many movies. Because I did my research and I bought the tickets to a lot of the ones that had come in with the kind of buzz saying like, this is going to be the film of the festival. Uh, some of those panned out, some of those didn't pan out. We'll talk about them later on. But what I loved was diving deep and finding this thing that, that just seemed interesting to me and taking a 
complete chance on it and loving it. Brian and Charles does not have distribution as of right now. I'm taping this on Wednesday night. The festival is still technically going on for a couple more days and the awards have not yet been given, so it's possible that it could have picked up distribution by the time I'm talking to you as it's possible with any of these other films that I don't yet know if they've been picked up. But I hope that somebody purchases this film because it's very small. It's not going to be a mainstream hit, but I think it can find its niche. It reminds me of uh, an early Edgar Wright movie or an early Taika Waititi movie. It can maybe find the kind of niche that what we do in the shadows found before the breakout of Taika Waititi with the Marvel movies and everything. It's a really sweet little film, and I love that it broke out to become my favorite of the festival. Cheeky bots it in the front, Brian. Stop saying front. Front, 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 front. Kind of on the opposite end of the spectrum is a Danish horror film called Speak No Evil. It's about a Danish family on vacation in Italy who meets a Dutch family. They get along and the Dutch family invites them to come and visit them for the weekend. And it is really a gradually escalating series of uncomfortable situations that then turn into horrible situations because the more you learn about this family, the more you learn that they're not exactly who they appear to be. And there's so many times in this movie, uh, like in the the best horror movies where you're screaming at this family to go run no don't do that turn around even though when I say something like Danish horror film you don't necessarily think it's going to be accessible uh, as the kind of horror film that you might usually see in a theater this movie is now of course it is dark 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 it is pitch black dark and it definitely is not going to be the kind of thing that's for everybody but I really 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 liked this film it is so tense so suspenseful full of a lot of great performances and a lot of just moments. It's not the kind of jump scare movie. It's really the kind of movie that just creeps you out. Luckily, you will get a chance to see it because Shudder acquired the film. It will reportedly release it later this year on the Shudder streaming service. Uh, although I hope they also maybe do a limited theatrical run because this was a really, really good movie and I can't wait to watch it again. One of two movies that I watched the first night of the festival was one called Fresh. And I know that this movie is going to be spoiled. I've already seen elements spoiled in reviews and news stories and and there's no way around that because it's also going to be available on streaming it comes out on Hulu on March 4th here in the US although hilariously it's going to be distributed via Star Plus and Disney Plus internationally and the idea of this movie being on Disney Plus anywhere is so funny because this one makes Speak No Evil look like a walk in the park Daisy Edgar Jones plays Noah a woman who's ready to give up on dating when she meets a doctor named Steve who is played by Sebastian Stan, who is great in this movie. Uh, you have not seen Sebastian Stan play a role like this before. And if you double feature this with Speak No Evil, you'll learn that you never agree to go to a weekend visit with anybody that you don't know, because Noah agrees to go visit Steve at his cabin for a weekend, and the horrors that unfold there are beyond what anyone can imagine. This is the feature film directing debut of Mimi Cave with a script by Lauren Kahn, and this was a another one. I mean, it's a different kind of ugh, movie, but there's so many moments where we were just sitting on the couch going, oh, oh, oh. I mean, this is one I'm going to have a video ready for when Fresh comes out, because I think that there are going to be so many people that, number one, see it when it comes out, and then number two, see the buzz on social media and from their friends, etc. I think there's going to be a lot of people that want to talk about this movie the minute that it drops. Like I said, great performances across the board. Sebastian Stan, a real standout if you've only seen him 
as Bucky Barnes or in some of the other bigger roles that he's done, you're in for a real surprise with this movie. Try to stay as unspoiled as you can because there are so many twists and turns in this movie that are great to discover and horrifying to discover as you go. It was a really good year for horror at Sundance and a really good year for European horror because there's another film called Hatching, which is a Finnish horror film from director Hannah Bergholm. It's about a young gymnast who lives with her demanding mommy blogger mother who hatches an egg in her bedroom and what emerges strains the bonds between an already fractured family. If you can take a flyer, if you're a fan of horror and you're just looking for a really um, off kilter, definitely, and again, very dark horror film, then I would say take a flyer on Hatching. This is another one that has already received distribution. IFC Midnight has picked up the rights. It'll debut the film on VOD and in theaters on April 29th, and it's another one that I would say go see for sure, especially if you're a horror fan. A really powerful and affecting film in a different way is a movie called 892. This is the second film from director Abby DeMaris Corbin and features a powerhouse performance from John Boyega and the real story of Brian Brown Easley, a veteran who takes hostages in order to bring awareness to the wrongs that have been done to him by the VA and the VA system. This also features the last screen performance of Michael K. Williams before his tragic death last year. Everybody's great in this movie. You also have Connie Britton, so many talented actors, but it's Boyega who was really the breakout here. He stepped in for Jonathan Majors, and this was really Jonathan Majors' loss because this is a great role, and John Boyega is great in this role. It is a performance that is full of pain and hurt and anger, and it's so well done. And on a personal note, just living with a veteran and seeing what she goes through with the VA and then knowing that this is a true story of somebody else who's gone through uh, similar things, although certainly not the same things, it really also uh, stirs you to action almost as much as a documentary would about how the veterans here in the U.S. are being failed by the VA system. 892, as of the taping of this, has not yet picked up distribution. Somebody needs to pick this movie up and soon because it deserves a wide audience. The last movie I watched this year was a movie called Emily the Criminal. It's the feature film debut of writer-director John Patton Ford, and it stars Aubrey Plaza as Emily, who turns to a life of crime in order to stay afloat in a world that only offers side hustles and unpaid internships, along with the massive student debt that she has from art school. Aubrey Plaza, if you only know her from Parks and Recreation, has had so many strong roles uh, in breakout indie hits. If you haven't seen a film called Ingrid Goes West, she is phenomenal in that film. She's also really, really good in this one. In a different way, it's not a similar performance at all. And it's another example of an actor like Aubrey Plaza who is only growing as her career grows and showing us what she can do and what she's capable of. This has yet to pick up distribution as well, and this feels like something that a neon or perhaps a smaller distributor could grab and put into perhaps a limited number of theaters at first in order to grow buzz and then perhaps roll out because I think this is something that could be a mainstream hit uh, if you just allow it the time to grow. I saw several documentaries that we'll talk about, but the one that was my absolute favorite was called Fire of Love. It set off a bidding war, the first bidding war that we saw at the Sundance Film Festival, and for good reason, it was eventually purchased 
just by National Geographic, who's going to release it later this year. It's about volcanologist couple Katie and Maurice Kraft, who often ventured closer to volcanoes than anyone dared to before and devoted a large part of their career to researching some sort of early warning system. The movie is made up entirely of the footage that they themselves shot, and it's put together in a very playful way. It's almost like a Wes Anderson documentary, although the story is a little bit darker than some of the areas that Wes Anderson goes to, but they're a very charming couple, and the fact that they love each other, and right underneath is how much they love volcanoes, is a great human element. But then the footage that we see, the stuff that they were able to shoot by hiking up into the to the top of these volcanoes, they're beautiful sights, they're horrible sights, they're inspiring, they're terrifying. It's some of the best nature footage that I've ever seen, and I'm sure people that have seen their work, they produce several documentary films, have probably seen this footage before, but I certainly haven't. So you have a great nature angle, you have a great human angle, and it was honestly not just one of the best documentaries at this festival, it was one of the best documentaries that I've seen. It is really, really good. It's everything that you want in a documentary film, and I think that you could be looking at, I know it sounds absurd because we're not even to the Academy Award nominations for this year, I think you could be looking at the winner for the 2023 award for best documentary feature. It's just that good, and I think National Geographic recognized that because it's not just going to streaming where it has the distribution arm here on Disney Plus in the U.S. It will also be headed for theatrical release. So those are the movies that I loved. Let's get to some that I thought were really, really strong. Just one shade below. The first movie is actually the first Sundance movie that I watched, and that is another documentary called The Princess. It's about Princess Diana, and I know that there's been a lot of stuff about Princess Diana recently, but the approach here is what is so great. It's from documentarian Ed Perkins, and it tells the story of Diana from the time that she got engaged to Prince Charles to the time of her death, but it's told only through contemporaneous media footage, meaning we're seeing the actual news reports and footage that were shot at the time. There's no retrospective element. Nobody's looking back on the story. It's all in the moment, and we track it across the years, and we see how uh, the public's opinion evolved to Diana, how the media's obsession with her grew, how the coverage for her changed as she went through the different stages of her marriage. It's a really fascinating look at the life of Princess Diana as people saw it at the time, a different perspective, and I think that's what you need to kind of refresh subject matter that's been covered this much. Another film I really liked is one called Called Jane. It's the feature directorial debut of Phyllis Nage, who wrote Carol, which was nominated for an Academy Award, several Academy Awards several years ago. It stars, amongst others, Elizabeth Banks, Sigourney Weaver, and Kate Mara as a group called the Janes, or the Jane Collective, who work together to provide women access to safe, abortions in Chicago during the 1960s at a time when that practice was illegal in many parts of the country. This is not only a relevant film to the history of the United States, but depending on how things happen in the real world this year and in many other years, it could be very relevant to what is happening today in the United States, but it's not just about the social relevancy angle. It's also very well acted, very well directed, uh, and is another movie, particularly if the real world events do line up, that you could be hearing a lot about later this year. Riley Stearns, who made a film called The Art of Self-Defense a few years ago, has made a really interesting little sci-fi film called Duel, 
which stars Karen Gillan. She plays a woman who has herself cloned, then has to fight her clone for the right to survive. Aaron Paul co-stars as her fight trainer. And this one had a very interesting feel to it. If you've seen The Lobster or movies by Yorgos Lanthimos, it has that same kind of feel, similar also to The Killing of a Sacred Deer. It's a very deadpan world, and this sort of heightened uh, action that's happening, the idea of having a clone out there, but treating it in this very low energy manner is a really interesting approach. I liked this movie a lot and it has gotten distribution. It was picked up by RLJE Films who have handled Color Out of Space and Mandy among many others and I think that's the right fit because this movie kind of falls into that same category where you're into some kind of a broader genre but you have a very unique take on it. There's another film called Alice which is the debut film from director Kristen Verlinden. It stars Kiki Palmer as Alice a slave who escapes a plantation only to find out that it's really 1973. Common co-stars as an ally who helps her catch up on 100 years of history. And the big comparison that I heard and that I honestly made myself going into this was the film Antebellum, which came out uh, a little over a year ago, which has a similar plot, but this movie actually feels completely different. Other than the basic similarities, it is very much more about a tribute to black history, to 70s black culture. I would put it much more akin to a movie like Django Unchained than I would Antebellum. I thought the performances were really strong in this one. Some people may be jarred by the tone of the film because it definitely does take a turn, but it was a turn that I enjoyed because I found this to be a movie about empowerment and understanding and realizing the potential within yourself, especially when that potential has been forcibly withheld from you for your entire life. I really enjoyed Alice and Kiki Palmer in particular was great in this film. Swinging back to the documentary side, there was one called Navalny, which is a documentary about Alexei Navalny, the opposition leader in Russia. He was poisoned, allegedly by operatives tied to Vladimir Putin, and it is a mystery story of a man investigating his own attempted murder. And we see him in real time connecting the dots and trying to find the Russian hit squad, basically, who tried to poison him. And it all culminates in this incredible phone call, which is again caught in real time, where he is able to get a member of this hit squad, it seems, on the phone to confirm the details of his own demise, or or at least what they wanted to be his demise. It's a really fascinating documentary, and of course, geopolitically, very relevant with Russia. It's also very much still being written. We don't quite know what the end game with Alexei Navalny is going to be. This could be a landmark documentary in profiling a person who chose to go back to Russia, knowing that he would face persecution because he loves his home country so much. Navalny was produced by CNN Films and HBO Max, and it will reportedly be released on both platforms later this year. The hot ticket for Sundance going in was a movie called Cha-Cha Real Smooth, and I was shut out of being able to get tickets for this until late in the festival. They dropped some extra tickets uh, just, I think, the day before the second screening of this film, and I was able to snag one. Cooper Rafe writes, directs, and co-stars as a bar mitzvah DJ alongside Dakota Johnson as an engaged mother who he finds a connection with with 
And it didn't surprise me that this was a big buzzy Sundance movie because it is the kind of movie that you often see land a big deal coming out of the festival. I'm honestly kind of surprised that, again, as I'm taping, there hasn't been a deal struck with Cha-Cha Real Smooth because it is a crowd pleaser in the spirit of a movie like Coda, although I liked Coda a little bit more than I liked this movie. But it's the kind of movie that a distributor is going to want to snag because you really could draw in a big box office audience or a big streaming audience uh, if that's the way that you decide to go with it. I would really anticipate that there's going to be a deal reached for this movie very soon. Perhaps they're waiting to see if it wins any of the big awards, the audience award, etc. But it's a very sweet movie. I genuinely cared for a lot of these characters. I did have some third act issues with a a few of the characters and how they were dealt with and, and, and I think that there were some things set up earlier in the film that didn't quite pay off. But again, very easy to see why so many people were looking for this and especially Especially when you look at it from the marketplace angle, this was maybe the most mainstream film in the Sundance Film Festival this year. Finally, on this level is a horror film called Piggy. It comes from Spain. Its Spanish name is Cerdita, and it comes from director Carlota Pereira. It's about a bullied girl who faces a moral dilemma when her bullies are kidnapped. I think it's going to find distribution because this is another one where it's an interesting moral dilemma. You have these kids that are so mean to this girl, but then when you see horrible things potentially about to befall them, you're kind of in her shoes because you're thinking, well, should I root for these kids to be saved? I mean, they are still teenagers, or do they deserve what they're getting? It's something that really is wrestled with for the entire movie. There's great performances throughout. This does feel like something like a Shudder movie. I don't know if it would be something that would be a nationwide release, but if if one of the streaming services can pick it up, if you can really kind of micro-market to horror fans, I think it's one that, that a lot of people are going to enjoy as it's discovered, hopefully, throughout this year. Before I move on to the next batch of movies, I just wanted to thank today's sponsor, Athletic Greens. If you've been watching the channel recently, you know that I've been talking about Athletic Greens a lot, and it's not just because they are a sponsor, but it's because it's something that I've enjoyed using every day for the past couple weeks. I started taking Athletic Greens because it's got a lot of vitamins and probiotics, things that my body really, really likes, but it's also because it helps me focus on my health. It's something I'm doing a lot this year, particularly my gut health. Athletic Greens has so much stuff that helps me focus on that particular part of my body, but it's not just specialized in something like gut health. It also helps to support sleep quality and recovery, mental clarity and alertness, and it contains less than one gram of sugar, no GMOs, no nasty chemicals or artificial anything while still tasting good. I'd love for you to be able to give Athletic Greens a try. And to make that easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com Dan. Again, that is athleticgreens.com D-A-N to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Moving down one more tier to movies that I I still really enjoyed. I thought they were very good films. It's really just that the other two tiers were that much more exceptional. There's a really small film called A Love Song. It stars two actors whose names you may not know, but you probably recognize their faces, Dale Dickey and Wes Studi. They're often in the margins of films, but they take center stage here as two middle-aged high school friends whose spouses have both died. It's a very small film, very intimate, takes place mostly on one small, patch of land at a campground but a great character 
driven film and a great showcase for both of these actors. I could see a lot of awards buzz again next year going into uh, things like the Independent Spirit Awards because this is a role that both of these actors were due a lot to gnaw on, a lot to dig deep into, and really a showcase for the fact that they're better than just the small parts that they're often given in other films. Second Chance is another documentary. It's from Ramin Barani, who on the narrative side directed The White Tiger, which was an awards film last year, 99 Homes, starring Andrew Garfield and Michael Shannon. Second Chance is about the inventor of the bulletproof vest, who famously demonstrated it by shooting himself point blank with a gun. Very easily could have killed himself, didn't do it, still alive, shot Shockingly, but a very complicated man. It was a story that I wasn't really familiar with, but one that I really, really found interesting. Three other documentaries were at this level for me. One of them was My Old School, which is a documentary about a Scottish high school student in the 1990s who is found to be hiding a web of secrets. And the framing device here is really interesting because they did extensive interviews with the student, but he did not want to be seen on camera. So they did audio recordings of his voice and and then the actor Alan Cumming basically lip syncs his interviews. Cumming was at one time going to play this character in a feature film. That deal fell apart. So he's able to sort of return to this story. A really interesting look at a very complicated person. Something that you're going to be able to see very soon is a four-part documentary series that ran as part of Sundance's programming called We Need to Talk About Cosby. It's from comedian W. Kamau Bell. And it starts airing on Showtime beginning this weekend. It is a four-part documentary about Bill Cosby, his legacy, and the complicated feelings left in the wake of his conviction on sexual assault charges. If you don't know anything about Bill Cosby or just how important he was to American culture, to black culture, and the devastating impact that his crimes had on the people who grew up idolizing him, it's a really great insight into that. And then another really insightful documentary is one from Amy Poehler, who directed one called Lucy and Desi. It's about Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz, how they helped revolutionize the entertainment industry, their decades-long relationship, and I found this to be a lot more informative and impactful than the narrative film being the Ricardos, and it just kind of goes to show you that sometimes truth is better than fiction, or at least the fictional account of true events, because pretty much everything that's in the Aaron Sorkin film is documented here, but I think that it's much more impactful by seeing the actual events, hearing their voices, seeing their faces, it's going to be available on Amazon Prime on March 4th, so not a long wait if you want to check out Lucy and Desi. This next tier is an interesting one. It's one that I call festival crowd movies. You might call this the A24 tier. These are movies that I admired, but maybe weren't quite on my wavelength. One of them is After Yang, which is from Korean director Koganada. It stars Colin Farrell and Jodie Turner-Smith as a couple whose android childcare assistant Yang breaks down. And what what follows is very much an exploration of life. What's the meaning of life? There are some very interesting sci-fi concepts here. Colin Farrell and Jodie Turner-Smith are great in this film, as well as the rest of the cast. It's a beautiful film, but it's also very existential. There's a lot of meditations on different things. It's a very non-linear narrative. It's not that I didn't enjoy the film. It just didn't quite engage me in the way that a lot of the other films did. On a very similar track is a movie called You Won't 
won't be alone. It's a drama about a Macedonian witch who wanders the countryside changing forms. It's also an exploration on life and its meaning. Numi Rapace is one of the witch's forms. And the way that I described it when I was doing my quick reviews on Twitter is it's kind of like Terrence Malick, but with entrails. It's very meditational. It's a lot of nature shots and very ponderous voiceover, uh, a lot of lingering shots, etc. The kind of thing that a lot of people are really, really into doesn't quite ring my bell, but rings a lot of other people's bells. One quick word of warning is that this has already been picked up by Focus Features. It is going to distribute the film in April in the United States. It's being sold somewhat as horror, which I guess it technically is, but I would also say if you're going to see it for the horror angle, be prepared for the very artful side as well, because it is not quite as much of a horror film as I think a lot of people would have you believe. Finally, there's a film called Resurrection starring Rebecca Hall, who is really coming on strong. She was great in a film called The Night House, which came out last year. She directed Passing, which is getting a lot of awards buzz, and she's great again in this movie. She plays a woman whose former lover resurfaces, dredging up bad memories of the past, and I loved her more in this movie than I loved the movie. The first two acts are a really strong thriller, but then we get into the third act, which takes a a very surreal turn. It just felt out of sync with where we were going with the rest of the narrative of the film. However, I think there's going to be people that find great symbolism in what happens in this third act. That's why I put these three movies on the art house crowd level because it's a little hit or miss. They're movies that I would never say I didn't like. They're movies that I would say I admire but didn't quite resonate with me the way that they're going to resonate with others. I would recommend all three of those with certain caveats as I would recommend these next four films. These were movies that I thought were good. Perhaps they had some problems but overall weren't bad films. One of them is a documentary called Downfall, The Case Against Boeing. It's an examination of the actions Boeing took around the crashes of two 737 MAX planes and how nobody was jailed for their actions around this whole situation is really mystifying when you watch this movie. There may not be a lot of stylistic flair but the narrative is there. Honk for Jesus, Save Your Soul is another one that had a lot of buzz. It's from director Adama Ibo. Sterling K. Brown and Regina Hall play the married pastor and first lady of a megachurch who are dealing with the fallout of a personal scandal. The talent is definitely there. A lot of the laughs are there too. I just didn't think that the movie really came together as a whole by the end of it. But still, I think the pieces are there enough for me to say, you know, hey, why not give it a shot and check it out? There's a documentary called We Met in Virtual Reality which is from documentarian Joe Hunting. He's been doing a lot of work in the realm of VR for the past few years. He documents a year in the pandemic life of a group of people who largely have only met in the virtual world. I think that the subjects are interesting. The approach is really where I think the movie falls a little bit short. There are some really compelling stories, and I think if we'd stayed with those a little bit more, maybe if the documentary was a bit shorter, I would have been a little bit more into it. But there are also times where we're just sort of sat back watching uh, these people hang out in virtual reality, and I didn't quite have that third-party enjoyment or fascination as I did when it was taking more of a narrative approach. And finally, another movie that I 
enjoyed was called TikTok Boom. Again, another very straightforward doc. It's about the origins of TikTok and some of the influencers who have made it their home. And I think that it really could have excelled if it was uh, a profile of the influencers and users that are on TikTok, or if it was just a straight primer about TikTok, or if it was an indictment of the platform and its backgrounds, its ties with China. But it sort of tries to be all three of those things. And I think it's sort of a jack of all trades, master of none situation. So by the end, I really felt like it was surface level on all three. But if you don't know what TikTok is, or if you're really, really interested in TikTok, maybe you'll like this a little bit more than I did. Of the 28 films that I saw, there were really only two that I would label as sort of disappointments, uh, movies that I just didn't quite enjoy, didn't quite do it for me. One of them was actually my most anticipated film of the festival, which is a movie called Something in the Dirt. This is from directors Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead. They've made movies that I've enjoyed in the past. One of them was called The Endless. They're going to be directing episodes of Moon Knight coming up, and it's about paranormal activity in an L.A. apartment building. It didn't really come together for me. Uh, I thought there were some really interesting ideas in it, but it really just didn't work for me in general. The other movie that was a disappointment for me was maybe the second most buzzed about movie after Cha-Cha Real Smooth, and that's the directorial debut of Jesse Eisenberg. It's a movie called When You Finish Saving the World, I understand movies that have unlikable characters, and I love plenty of movies that have unlikable characters. Finn Wolfhard plays uh, a young wannabe influencer in this film. Julianne Moore is his mother. I hated every single character in this movie, which is fine if that's the emotion and the journey that you want to take the audience on, but it was really an hour and 25 minutes of me wanting to reach through the screen and strangle Finn Wolfhard's character. I hated him, and it's not just because I'm an old man. I would challenge anyone from age 16 to 60 to watch this film and not hate Finn Wolfhard's character in this movie. If that's the point of the movie, I get it, but it was like an hour and 25 minutes of making me hate this character and then maybe five minutes of telling me why I should love this character. I did not want to give him any measure of redemption. His parents weren't much better. You have kind of a disinterested, put-upon dad. Julianne Moore is a very indulgent mom. I didn't feel sympathy for her because I'm like, well, you raised this monster. You're culpable as well. She's doing her own thing and kind of digging her own grave. But it was really a case of uh, not putting enough effort into making me want these characters to have some form of resolution that is positive. Instead, I wanted them to fail miserably. Uh, And so the movie kind of felt like it had an unearned ending and really just was not one that I liked at all. And those are the movies that I saw. Like I mentioned, there were so many that I didn't see. Living and Good Luck to You, Leo Grand. Lena Dunham's film, Sharp Stick. Tignataro's film, Am I Okay? Emergency, Master, Happening, which won the Golden Lion at Venice. There was another movie that I've actually already seen. It's an international film called The Worst Person in the World. My plan is once Academy Award nominations are released, The Worst Person in the World is a heavy favorite to be included in the five international film nominees. I plan on doing a video where I review all five of those movies, including If It's Nominated, Drive My Car, as well as The Worst Person in the World. We'll see what other films are included in that list. Uh, But that was one that was heavily featured at the festival that I had an opportunity to see late last year. And that's my wrap-up of Sundance 2022. Like I said, it was a great first festival experience. I look forward to doing even more, hopefully this year, uh, but also hopefully next year and beyond. And one piece of feedback that I left when they asked my thoughts is I know that we're probably going to be getting back to in-person film festivals, 
hopefully very soon. But I also hope that they're going to keep at least some element of the virtual uh, access open because I certainly couldn't afford to go to Sundance every year, um, perhaps any year, depending on lodging costs, etc. And the fact that I could, from the comfort of my own home, access these films, watch the introductions, see the Q, uh, the question and answer sessions, which they made available for everybody, engage with them, start talking about them here on the channel and elsewhere. I hope that one of the things that lasts beyond COVID is this realization that maybe we can open these things up to people that are outside of these small square blocks in Utah or up in Toronto or in Austin, Texas, that maybe these film festivals are for everybody, film lovers all around the country and the world, and I would love to be able to cover Sundance just as extensively next year. As I said, there are so many of these films that I'm excited about. I'm going to be doing full reviews on a lot of them as they're released. Keep an eye out for them. If I hear about any distribution deals for some of my favorites, I'll be sure to let you know. Thank you so much for watching. If you want to see what else I'm up to, you can check me out on Patreon at patreon.com slash Merle. And don't forget to check out the links in the description below to my audio podcast network. Everything I do here on YouTube, you can also find as part of my audio channel. I also do some audio exclusives from time to time. I'll be back later this week and next week with the latest news, movie reviews, you name it. Thanks so much for watching and from Virtual Sundance, I'll see you next time. Bye.